0: You may be seated. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Revelation. If you're visiting with us and maybe aren't familiar with the Bible, it's uh, printed for you um, in your worship guide. Um, If you are watching with us online or visiting here and don't have a Bible, we would love to get you um, God's Word and free of charge and a gift to you. Just message us, email me, let me know. I, um, if you've got your Bible, I'm going to actually start us um, in uh, chapter 1 um, to remind us of the vision that John gives us um, of who is speaking to us um, in these seven letters to these seven churches. And so we'll start at chapter 1, um, verse 8. Uh, we will read through the end of chapter 1 and then skip over to um, the letter of Laodicea in chapter 3 Verse 14. This is God's Word. Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis, to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, Shining in full strength, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold. I am alive forevermore, and I had the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you've seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And now to the angel and the lampstand in Laodicea in chapter 3, verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the Amen. The faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither hot, you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say... I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich in white garments, that you may clothe yourself I will grant him to sit with me on the throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is God's word. Would you pray with me and ask his blessing on his word preached? Lord Jesus, this is our ask this morning. Come with the voice of the roar of rushing waters and overcome us that we might fear you and delight in your grace. Ignite us, renew us, convict us that we might know the dual truths of the gospel, that we are more broken by sin than we could imagine to help us to see ourselves as pitiable, poor, and wretched, but more loved by you than we could ever dare dream. If you would do this for us, then we would soar out of ourselves and by your grace. We pray this in your name, our Savior. Amen. Well, if you've maybe noticed this, the... Pandemic has amplified a lot of things in our world. It's not been the cause of many things. It's been more like a megaphone that's turned up the quiet whispers of discontent, division, distrust. It's just amplified many of the things that have simmered underneath this very broken world. And John is writing his letter, this book. He's writing this book to a people who live in a world that is becoming increasingly hostile and foreign for God's people uh, amidst a great deal of disruption and distrust in the surrounding world against them. And the purpose of his book is to give them a better story to live by than the one that they see in the world around them so that they can see with their eyes the greatest reality, the most true story of what God is up to in the world and therefore experience their lives in a radically different way through the lens of the reigning and risen Jesus who is bringing all things to the final point where he puts things right through judgment and brings new heaven, and new earth. This is a story that is meant to be an interpretive grid. It's meant to engage their imagination so they can imagine the world apart from their current, present experience. And that is a glorious story that John is telling us. But before he gets to that story, he's got to do some housekeeping. Jesus needs to refine his church, and so he has some words for her. And that this is going on in these seven letters is that Jesus is revealing his heart towards his people. Again, he's writing these letters to the seven churches because the church is the focus of God's mission in the world and the instrument of his mission. It is the bride that Jesus adores The only organization that will last into the new heavens and new earth. But in order for the church to prosper, he has to refine her. And so he has some words for her. In each of these seven letters, there are things that Jesus says I I hate in you. But he also reveals his heart in such a way that he always ends with the promises of the gospel. You heard this dynamic in Ezekiel chapter 11. God says I'm to Israel, I'm coming for you, I'm coming against you, but it's not gonna destroy you, it's gonna refine you, and you're gonna experience as a result of my harsh judgment, my discipline over you, the intensity of my commitment to you, my grace for you. And in some ways, we've been building up to this seventh letter. This is the harshest of Jesus' letters. It it reveals what he hates the most. And I'm not going to hide the lead. This is the letter that is probably the closest address to the American evangelical church over the last 50 years. Because the greatest threat to the church in any age The greatest threat that any follower of Jesus faces, in fact, the greatest threat that anybody, even if you're not a follower of Jesus, the greatest threat that we face is our own self-sufficiency. We buy the lie that dependence is a bug and not a feature we buy the lie that dependence is a, is a virus that we need to distance ourselves from and create ways to insulate ourselves from and seek out a vaccine from so that we can avoid the great threat that we think is our own neediness and dependence but neediness isn't a bug, it's a feature. It's the way God has built us. We were made to be needing. And I often say that neediness, our dependence, are like the nubs on a lego. It's what binds us to God's grace. But we think of those nubs as the thing that we have to be afraid of stepping on in the dark because it's gonna hurt so much. And that's true. But when used properly, our dependence on Jesus is. Is the thing that binds us to him and then binds us to each other. Here's what's going on Laodicea was the center for medicine, clothing, and banking. It was an incredibly prosperous and extremely affluent city. It It was so self dependent when an earthquake that often rumbled through this region devastated the city of Laodicea. Instead of going to Rome and saying, We need help, they said, We're wealthy and self-sufficient enough to take care of this. We, We don't even need outside help. We've got this. They knew and were quite proud of their abilities to take care of themselves. And so Jesus says to them in verse 17, this is what you say. I'm rich. I've prospered. I need nothing. But the boast of the church wasn't just in their material wealth and their affluence they thought of themselves as spiritually wealthy as two because this is a church that much had been poured into them paul had instructed when he wrote the letter to the colossians that that letter be read to the church in laodicea luke sends his greetings to this church they had a faithful pastor epaphras who was discipled by the apostle paul they were affluent and material goods, and affluent in gospel teaching. And yet, with their prosperity of wealth and truth, Jesus doesn't have anything to commend this church for. With one exception, every other church that Jesus addresses in these seven letters, he says, There's things I'm going to resist, but there's things that you're doing really well. But this church in Laodicea is directly confronted. And they receive the harshest rebuke for what seems to be the tamest error. Because they were self-sufficient. It just seems so innocuous. But it led to their spiritual powerlessness. We are deeply wealthy people, even amongst the poorest of us. And our wealth isn't just monetary, we're rich in health care and learning and pleasures and housing and food. We are a nation, strangely enough, with the most counselors and most psychologists too. And I don't think those two things are unrelated to each other. And if we're going to listen to our advisors, we would do well to pay attention to Jesus. Our vast resources can lead us to this kind of powerlessness and self-sufficiency. which, I, Again, strangely enough, when anxiety and depression are on the rise, it's, it's times when we, we look inward for strength and power. The look inward just leaves us most despairing without any type of power and health. What seems to be the most innocuous and safe error leads to Jesus' harshest words. Listen to what Eugene Peterson, it's just an astute observation. He just builds up to the cutting words as he does, just gently builds up to the cutting words. And he says this, the church attracts to itself persons who like to live in the atmosphere of the holy, but have little interest in being holy themselves. They find delight in working on committees and finding security in ordering their lives within the reassuring traditions of the Father. They're faithful in showing up in church on Sundays and are fortified by listening to the moral instructions of their leaders, but have no appetite for holiness or joy or love, they are wholly conventional and entirely dull. The church is sought out as a sanctuary for living in pious sloth. And what Jesus is saying is, I hate that kind of church. I hate the ingrown church, the church that says, I want, but I don't need and he threatens listen to the threat i'm i'm threatened to spit you out he's not just grieved by this he's disgusted by this he isn't saddened by this we it, our, our english translation is sanitized verse 16 a little bit it 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 reads i will spit you out of his mouth but he literally says i'm going to vomit you out this is so turn my stomach, the sort of self-sufficiency I want but I don't need, consume but don't despair, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. And here's why, verse 15, he says, you're neither hot or cold. He says, "I, I would rather you be either hot or cold. In the broader context of what's going on is Laodicea had two neighbors, two entirely different cities with two different kinds of water sources. Six miles from Laodicea was the town of Heropolis, which was famous for its hot springs, and hot springs had medicinal value. Their waters were hot, and they brought healing. But nearby was also the cold waters of Colossae. The spring-fed cold waters were refreshing but, in Laodicea, the water supply came through an elaborate system of Roman aqueducts. And when that water got to Laodicea, it was lukewarm and full of calcium. And so the waters of Laodicea often made someone so sick that they would literally vomit. And when, so when Jesus says, I would rather you be hot or cold, he's making the point This is your role in the world. The church doesn't exist for itself to give you what you want, but for the despairing inside and outside because it's meant to bring the hot healing waters of his grace to those Whose decisions and paths of life have left us broken and with no health. The church exists to bring the refreshing waters of the gospel to those who are spiritually thirsty. Those are the things that Jesus loves. Look outside, look inside. If you're despairing, then I'm going to drink you up. You're going to be beautiful. But if you're lukewarm and you're just, I don't need, I just want... Jack Miller in his book, Outgrowing the Ingrown Church, makes this astute observation. Personal comfort's not wrong in itself, but it's desperately wrong when it becomes the primary reason for the existence of the local church. We see the gospel says to us, Jesus left the comfort of heaven. To come in the form of a servant so that that those who are lost and hell bound could receive forgiveness from him and transforming power. And that's why a church that just so is turned in on itself that it just thinks I want but I don't need. It's grossly out of line with the mission of Jesus who came to seek and to save those who are lost and broken, to put a table in front of those. He's the savior of sinners. And if you find yourself in that place, you don't receive the rebuke of Jesus. You receive the embrace of Jesus. In each of these letters, Jesus introduces himself in a different way that's appropriate to the needs of the particular church. He refers to himself in verse fourteen as the Amen, the true and living one. And when we say Amen, it it literally is a translation of an old word that just simply means true. When we pray Amen at the end of a serve at the end of a prayer, what we're saying is what was just said. We're agreeing with that is a true thing that was prayed. It's not. It's not sort of the indicate it's not like a period that says okay that's ended we can move on it's a it's that's true i agree with that and and jesus loved to introduce himself with this teaching his teaching with these words truly truly i say to you and that's that translation amen amen what i'm saying is true But he's not just the true one, he's the faithful and true witness. And the way he's introducing himself is he's grabbing them by the shirt collars and saying, I need you to listen. My assessment of your spiritual state is the most accurate assessment that you need to hear. Because the solution that he's going to offer is the most reliable foundation on which we can build our lives. We need to hear the harsh news of the gospel and the good news of the gospel. You see, this is what Jesus does. If you don't hear his rebuke in your life, you don't know him as king. And if you don't know him as king, you don't know him as savior. The two can't be separated from each other. He is the true and the living one. But you need to see, we need to see how the rebuke of Jesus is intended to bring the offer of Jesus. Because this is the heart. Verse 19, I only reprove those that I love. Verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Now, some of you have come to Christ through that verse, and it's a wonderful that God uses it that way. But it's not primarily a, a word to... Those who aren't followers of Jesus, it's primarily a word to the followers of Jesus. And you have to hear the Old Testament undertones here, as John often does. He's bringing strands of the Old Testament into this final book and wrapping it all up together. And what it's referencing is the bridegroom in the Song of Solomon, who stands at the chamber door of his beloved, wooing her. Let me come in as he's knocking on the door To find my love, find its fulfillment. He's wooing her. I'm coming to be with you. It's the language of intimacy and passion for his bride. Behold, I come at the door and knock so that I can come in and my love for you could find its fulfillment. And then he switches metaphors to an equally intimate setting. And I will eat with him and he with me. Even in our own culture, eating together is an act of intimacy. Things slow down, conversations happen, flows a little more freely. The depths of our heart are often revealed, but that is so much more in the context of the ancient Near East because to eat with someone was a deep level of identification and embrace. This is why Jesus is often accused of eating with tax collectors and and sinners. To sit at a table with someone was to signal to them a deep level of Of belonging together and embrace at the deepest possible level. And he's combining these two metaphors. I'm like a bridegroom who's knocking at the door so my love for you could find fulfillment. And and also, I'm like the one who sits down with those who are most dependent and needy and accepts you. But he says, you don't realize that you are impoverished in the true economy of the world. You, are, you think of yourself as rich, but you're really pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So I've got to counsel you that the economy that you are living in is killing you. Because it's costing you everything and leaving you with nothing. But in my economy of love and of grace the economy that's built on the gospel, in that economy it costs me everything and it only costs you your self-reliance. So he only rebukes those he loves and disciplines. And the rebuke is meant to drive us out of our self-reliance. This is a profound Dynamic. You won't find this anywhere else in the world around you. One commentator says, Is there anything more wonderful in the entire Bible than this? That these lukewarm people with whom the Lord is so thoroughly disgusted that He is about to spew them out of His mouth, He now addresses Himself in these promises. As many as I love, I reprove, and discipline. Behold, I'm standing at the door and knocking. Look at verse 18 counsel you. He's not going to leave them in their despair because he loves them. He reproves them to drive them out of themselves. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you could be rich and white garments that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. And In Isaiah 55 he says, come and buy from me without any cost to you. The world, the economy that you're living in It's telling you, spend everything, cost everything, and you'll end up dry and cold and pitiable and poor, but come into my economy, it won't cost you anything, and and purchase from me at no cost to you and every expense to me everything that will satisfy. But Jesus does so much more than just call them to leave things behind. He offers them such a better replacement in himself. Everything that's broken about you, you'll you'll find in me. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire. Not the gold that will melt away. If I've already refined it, it's gone through the fire of God's judgment. I've come out on the other side. And so it's sitting here and I'll keep this for you. You can have it. All of my inheritance, everything that belongs to me that I've earned with my life, my death, my resurrection. It's yours. It's gold. It's already gone through the fire of God's judgment. It can be yours. It's gold so that you can be rich. In God's economy, where he values those who walk in righteousness, and you look at yourself, I'm not righteous, there's nothing good in me. It's like, yeah, I'll give you my righteousness. And it's like gold refined by fire. And you'll be rich in white garments. Later, Sia had black wool, that's their clothing industry. It was just treasured in black wool. And Jesus contrasts that white garments is purity. And that's going to clothe the shame that you feel in your nakedness. Isn't that so much of why we try to be self-reliant? I can't let anybody see how broken and shameful I am, and so I'm going to clothe myself in my appearance. I'm going to present the best self on Instagram. I'm going to curate my life so that you can see. And he's like, no, no, don't try to clothe yourself. Let me clothe you with white garments. My own purity and salve to anoint your eyes. He's offering them something so much better. And you see what Jesus is doing. He's like a good mother who knows that the best ways to get scissors from the hands of an infant isn't to jarringly yank them away. That's too dangerous. They'll fight with you over that. They've, they found this dangerous instrument to be precious in their sight. And so the safest way to get scissors out of an infant is to give them some, something so much better to grab hold of And then in the act of grabbing the better, they'll leave the dangerous on the ground. And he's offering, he says, I'm going to give you me. Free of charge. Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He has no money. Come and buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. And only those who cannot pay can partake of Jesus. He'll give you everything. And it's free to any sinner. Any broken, helpless person. But it is not a costless commodity. In fact, it's quite the opposite. It is the most costly commodity. The most rich and treasured, highly priced commodity in this world. Because it was bought with the currency of Jesus' own obedience. Purchased with the inestimable value of his own blood. By a Savior who gave hell of himself, all of himself, so that we might gain all that we need at no cost to ourselves. And so, how do we access this in a kind of way that experiences the power of God's grace to make us hot and cold? Drive us out of our lukewarmness, verse 19. This is the only proper response in these moments. So be zealous and repent. And that's not just the outward result. It's an inward reality. Hate the things that I hate, turn away from them. I mean, repentance, it's a churchy word. It just simply means do an about face to turn from making the world essentially revolve around me. Everything exists for me. To do an about-face from that and say, everything exists for Jesus. And so I'm going to put off my pride. I'm going to put on faith. And faith always goes outside of itself. I'm going to turn away from my self-dependency again today. Because this is the way I woke up. It's the way I'll go to bed tonight. It's the way I'll eat my lunch all day long. With a bug in my system is self-dependency. Dependence, I'm going to turn away from that and go outside of myself for Jesus. And so be reminded that it's only those he loves and reproves that he calls to repent. And then he offers the riches of his grace. Again, Jack Miller. Repentance has nothing to do with man, what man has done. Rather, it's man's coming Undone in respect to all human attempts at building our own righteousness or saving ourselves or finding our own strength or self-dependence. Righteous repentance always is followed by going outside of himself in faith to Christ alone for salvation. In other words... Repentance can only be genuine and lasting when the evildoer sees that God's mercy is available. There is enough love and more accessible to any sinner who wants it because one drop of the blood of Jesus will atone for the worst of our sins and more. And so the only thing that will turn us more and more outward towards Jesus, towards others, and towards the world is gospel-driven repentance. And isn't that the typical irony of Jesus, the nature of the upside-down kingdom, that the pathway to true power is to turn away from yourself? To become undone by our sin. And then to find all that we need in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we would confess, I would confess, that if your power is perfected in weakness, I am driven We are driven by so much self-dependence. We don't hear your words, your poor, pitiable, wretched. And if we did, then we would despair of ourselves and lean wholly into you and your strength would be perfected. It would come to its intended end in our weakness. So help us, God, to repent more deeply. To be struck down so that you could heal us. And Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, as we come to the table of the Lord Jesus, you should have found a cup at your seat. This cup has two layers. If you need some more, there's some over... On the table, the first layer will pull back and reveal the bread, and the second layer will reveal, we'll pull the wine. We'll do this together and partake of them separately, the bread together and the cup together because we are one body. And you see what Jesus is giving us? He's literally sitting down and eating with us. He's knocked at the door, and he said, "If you need nourishment, go outside of yourself." And come to me, come buy wine and without any cost to you. And so, my friends, if your faith is in Christ, this is your table. If you've not yet put your faith in Christ, then hear His call to come to him, and then come to His table. Christ has come in him. God will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. And Christ will come again. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen.